Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. More exciting news, I've recently launched Zibby's Picks book subscription service. Four times a year, so every three months, I'll send you a new fantastic book that I think you will love. So just go to zibbyowens.com, and it's actually zibbyowens.com slash swag, and sign up for a book subscription in either fiction, memoir, nonfiction slash parenting, children's book, middle grade fiction, and I'll send you just fantastic books, and it will be great. And I also have gift options available if you want to give this to another book lover in your life. So please check it out. Tell friends and start subscribing. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Libro FM. Libro FM Audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, ro.fm and enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. With every time you listen to an audiobook, now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore. And the best part is that I have my own playlist on Libro FM, which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. Joanne Ramos is the author of debut novel, The Farm. Originally from the Philippines, Joanne moved to Wisconsin when she was six years old. She graduated from Princeton University, worked in investment banking and private equity investing, and then became a staff writer at The Economist. She currently serves on the board of The Moth. A mother of three, she lives with her husband in New York City. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you. Thanks for coming on, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Very excited to speak to you. (laughs) Um, So can you please tell listeners what The Farm is about and what inspired you to write it? So if you imagine the most luxurious spa you've ever seen, that's The Farm. It's got everything. It's got gourmet meals and and private massages, uh, private yoga instruction, and it's all for free for the women who are staying there. And uh, in fact, they can get paid big money uh, for spending their nine months uh, there. And the only catch is that they can't leave the grounds and every move is monitored and they're totally cut off from their daily lives because all of these women are surrogates. And by contract, they've agreed to prioritize the life that's growing inside of them uh, over everything in their own lives. And they carry the babies of the richest people in the world. And so my book is really, uh, I have four narrators ranging from the woman who runs the farm to a couple of the hosts and a lot of stuff ensues, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the book, was, um, it was so good. The, your book was so good. I like couldn't put it down. But anyway, keep going. So what made, well, you, what made you write this book? You know, it's funny. When I started writing it or dedicating myself to writing a book, I was already in my early 40s and I hadn't actually written fiction in 20 years. But since I've been a kid, I've loved writing. Um, I got my first diary when I was six and for my first communion, I've written my whole life. Just life can take you in a different direction. And the ideas behind the farm are really rooted in all the experiences throughout that period, um, from being born in the Philippines and being raised in Wisconsin in the late 1970s and 80s, which was a really different time, not just for Wisconsin, which was, I think, a much less diverse place, but just everywhere, right? You turn on the TV in the 80s and no one looked like me or spoke like my parents. Uh, And so it was just childhood feeling very different in many ways, but also part of something bigger because my dad's family lived uh, about 30 minutes away from us. And we would spend most of our uh, weekends after church there as part of really this tight Filipino community. And then 
I went to Princeton on financial aid, and that was a very new experience for me, too. I was one of the few women on Wall Street when I was there, and in this one private equity shop I worked in, I was the first woman that they'd hired as a professional. So that was straddling worlds again. And funnily enough, it wasn't just fitting in with the men there. It was also making sure that I didn't alienate or seem uppity or or somehow... uh, work out my relationship with the women who were also there because there were women there. They were just all on the support staff. And that was something very new to me too. And as an aside, when I very recently spoken to my husband about it, he said he's never felt the way I have often felt in my life, which is you want to do well in a place, but you want to make sure that you're not alienating the other women there or, or other people. And I think that's just a very female <laughs> thing that I didn't even notice really until recently that it just doesn't even cross his mind. He just goes into a place and just does his thing. Anyway. That's a total aside. And then, you know, I started having kids. And that's really when all of these different sort of obsessions I've had about feeling different or whether or not meritocracy was real at all, as my parents had always taught me. And that I started to really begin to question at Princeton when I met kids my age, some of whom became my good friends, but who'd never had to work, never would need to work and got their choice of any job or unpaid internship they wanted in the world. That was very, very new for someone like me. Um, But all of a sudden, I'm on the other side of this privileged divide, raising three kids in Manhattan. and you know, the only Filipinas I knew at that point were domestic workers, were either my nanny, um, who helped me for a bit, uh, or other people's nannies and housekeepers uh, and baby nurses. And I think it was this realization that as a mother, it's very hard to describe until you're a mother, that love and that desire, deep rooted desire to protect and give your kid a great shot in life which I felt as a mother. But the people I was hiring and got to know who were domestic workers were also often mothers. And they must have felt the exact same thing I did without without even close to the opportunities that my kids had. And on top of it, they were from often the country I was born in and had this almost reflexive pride for me because we were from the same place. And it just, I guess it just heightened everything I'd felt since Princeton, that that this merit, this myth of meritocracy, this idea that one success in this country or anywhere, it really rests on your shoulders and your effort and your savvy. It's just so deeply untrue. And because I'd always wanted to write, when I turned 40 and had the very cliche midlife crisis, <laughs> I, uh, I thought, oh, instead of going back to The Economist, where I had, uh, then uh, after finance, I'd worked as a time for a staff writer, I thought, well, why don't I give this a shot? But to be honest, I never thought, I didn't know if it would go anywhere. It was just something, it was just something I had to do. And that did end up becoming the farm. That's so cool. And so when you were writing this book, just out of curiosity, so were you doing Mm -hmm. this in tandem to everything else you were doing in your life? Like, did you try to fit this in at all, you know, at late at night and early in the morning? Or did you tell yourself, like, I'm going to take a year and write this book? So basically, I, so it was the cliche 40-year-old midlife crisis thing. I had been home at that point for maybe three, two years. And I actually didn't have a nanny, which in a weird way is probably what opened the possibility of the book in in two senses. One, my youngest child was already in school, so that freed up my whole days. And two, I didn't have a nanny, so I had the the house to myself. I just feel like I'm very chatty. I don't know. I think with having someone around, I would have been distracted in a weird way. Um, I basically made the decision. I'd read a very, this is a little cheesy. I read some kind of article in a business magazine saying you can create any habit in 37 days or 33 or 42, pick the number. I had off and on tried a little bit throughout my 30s with young kids to maybe try writing. And it just, I couldn't get in the habit. So in the beginning, that was the hardest part. Because I read this article, I said, okay, fine. Every Monday to Friday, until I hit 42 or 37, whatever the number was, I'm going to write. And I'm going to write while the kids are at school from 8.30 to noon. And that's it. And so it just meant I stopped 
exercising often, or I didn't see friends in the way I might have. I used to do coffees after job. I just didn't do any of that stuff. I'm like, I mean, I really give myself these 37, 42 days. And it actually worked. I mean, it, so that I became a habit. It was a year and a half of writing every day in that way before I got the the real hook, the, 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 the idea, the construct of the surrogacy facility. And that was from reading a Wall Street Journal article a year and a half later about an Indian surrogacy facility. And I didn't do any more research than that, just the what it started brewing in my head. And so when people ask me now, what was the hardest part of writing the book? The hardest part was that year and a half where I had committed to something I'd wanted to do since I was a kid, but I was writing really bad short stories. I have many, many first chapters and novels that just were never going to work. And that was just faith, right? That was just persistence and faith. Like, I'm just going to do this because I've always wanted to do it, but it's not going anywhere. And it was a little depressing. It was definitely isolating. But luckily, my husband from the get-go believed in it. My kids, they'd be like, my mom's a writer. I was like, Shh, no, she's not. <laughs> what doing? But they were just so proud of me anyway. It embarrassed me at the time. It did because it, I didn't want to tell people I was a writer. Because then, of course, the next question when my kids would introduce me that way is, so what have you published? I was like, well, I mean, nothing, nothing. I mean, I don't do, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Like, it was a little, but looking back, it was just so lovely that they didn't need proof the way I needed proof from myself. They just believed anyway. And so... Once I got the idea for a surrogacy facility, that was another three and a half years, but at least it felt like it was working, right? It was that first year and a half that was really the, that was a little tough. (laughs) Wow. But it sounds like it's like always just part of the process. Like I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of authors at this point. There's nobody who's like, I came up with this brilliant idea, sat down, wrote it, and that's it. Like it's not a linear process, writing and being creative and all this. It's just not... You can't like cross it off yeah. your list the way you can like an totally. article even or um, a report or something else. So I don't know. No, and you're then- totally funny. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I um, bumped into a friend of mine who's this great painter when I was in a cafe in that year and a half, feeling very down about myself and thinking I should get a real job or at least spend more time with a kid or whatever, like making being that self-flagellating mother thing. And then she said the same thing to me. She's like, all of your jobs in what? Banking, journalism, There's it's been linear. And when you worked, there was output pretty regularly, right? And uh, and she was right. It was really helpful for her. She would say that, that sometimes she'll work on a painting and end up trashing it months later. But she believed that that work still went somewhere. And in truth, I worked, I have had chapters, even once I got the idea, chapters I worked on for three months, I was like, I finally had to let go and kill my baby. I forget what writer said that. But so I think you're totally right. I think I just didn't get that because I'd never had the nonlinear experience. And then also starting so late in life, I just had so many little voices saying, really, you think you're going to write a book? What do you have to say? You're 41. Like, it's like find something real to do. I had all of those little, for whatever reason, now it seems almost silly or too self-flagellating, but really I just didn't, it's almost like I had to give myself permission to take it seriously. Yeah. And that just took a while. Yeah. I had a similar like midlife 40 year old crisis situation. So (laughs) I wrote a book last summer called 40 Love, um, sort of like a memoir about falling in love again at 40. And I've basically scrapped that book. And instead of like beating myself up the way I do about basically everything as a perfectionist. I'm yeah. like, wait a minute, every author is like, that's part of the process. Like I wrote this yeah. book and then it right. became this book. So I'm like, well, this is good because maybe now yeah. it means I'm on my way to the real book, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. right. But well, it's that's ha- what someone told me too, yes. It's no, hard. Go ahead, go ahead. It's hard. No, it just is. It's so hard to internalize that 
I feel like when you're not used to working in that way where you're used to, if you work hard and you do well in school and like you follow the formula, then you arrive at a certain place. And I feel like writing and the path to to making wonderful books is not that way at all. Anyway, well, I'm rambling and I don't want to take away from you, but um, it sounds like your story, like I I get it. It sounds... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but not and, too self-flagellating, I hope. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you take off the, yeah, don't, you stop punishing yourself, then uh, you can open up the world to writing a little more. Right, um, right. But anyway, your book was so great, and I want to talk more about that too. You started off with this really great inside look at the world of baby nurses from their perspective. And I have to admit, I had a baby nurse. I've had four kids. I had a baby nurse with all my kids. So this was particularly relevant, I feel like, for me, because obviously you're so close to the people helping you with your babies. And I found myself always wondering, like, well, what's going on? Like, how can... Anyway, so I wanted you to tell me some of the things, Like, and I'm going to just read a little quote. Um, You have eight, who's the elder sort of statesman of the nursing world, giving advice to her. Yes, and it's Ate. Oh, I'm sorry. Ate. Okay, so Ate is um, Ate is giving advice to her cousin Jane, who is going to take over for her as a baby nurse. And she's giving her all this great advice. And she'll, she says things like, the, and by they, you mean the, the people who have the baby, the clients. They will tell you to make yourself at home, but they do not want you to make yourself at home because it is their home, not yours. And they are not your friends. They are your clients, only that. And then she also says, be careful of the guilt, Jane. Do not allow it. At times, Mrs. Carter will tell you, I will take Henry. Go nap. You were up all night. But most likely, she is only feeling guilty about you. So tell me a little more about this and how you feel baby nurses have to sort of cater to the to the moms in this way. Well, so it's funny because, again, just like everything that I've been talking about with this straddling the world, you know, I have friends at my book launch at The Strand. I had a number of women there two of whom were nannies who had worked with me in the past, and then several others who were just my friends who, from that period when I was at home and got to know women. And so I would hear stories about some of their clients, but I've been a client. And so I find the relationship between a mother, especially, but a family and their the woman helping them raise their children to be so intimate and so fraught because it is fundamentally unequal. And we can all tell ourselves, and I have said this, and I don't say it anymore, but I have said, oh, well, fill in the blank is like family. She's like family. I hear people say it all the time. And it's just not true because ultimately my kids can take a nap on the couch and I'm not going to think about it. And if and I love, I'm thinking one, both of the nannies who've helped me, if I came home and they were sleeping on my couch, would I feel the same? I don't know if I should be saying, no, I would, <laughs> I would be like, why are you sleeping on the couch? Like you're, They're not like family. And I, and I wish... My new thing is I wish that we'd feel more comfortable accepting it is an intimate, but it's a work relationship. And and we should feel as proud to say, I love my nanny and I am the best employer I can be to her. And I treat her fairly and I, because because they're not family. And, and that's what I was trying to explore in this piece that I have definitely heard. I have not said, but I've definitely heard friends say to that they tell their baby nurse to make themselves at home. And then when the baby nurse did make themselves at home, my friends were like, so annoying. She ate my, the last of the yogurt that I like, you know. <laughs> don't say to make yourself at home. But I understand that compulsion because I do have this ambivalence about having help. It's, I think certain cultures are much more comfortable with it. I don't think Americans are. I am not. My mom grew up in the Philippines. She is much more, and we, it's not like they were wealthy, but you always have help in the Philippines. And she's much more comfortable having help because she grew up that way. So it was that sort of 
push and pull and that tension and yet the love, because there is love there a lot of the time, especially with these long-term relationships like nannying, I, I, I feel. So it was that, it was exploring both. So interesting. So Jane goes to work at Golden Oaks, which you just described at the beginning of this talk as the most luxurious mm-hmm. spot ever. But she has to leave her own daughter with her cousin Ate. And she's totally anguished by this, of course. So Ate thinks to herself, Jane needs the money, but perhaps it is too much for her to be apart from her daughter Amalia. Most of the women Ate knows have left their children behind to provide for them. And she has had clients, American women with important jobs, bankers and lawyers and professors in university, who returned to work when their babies were only 10 weeks old, staying so late in the office that they did not see their own children until the following morning. Does Jane think she is the only one to sacrifice? So I thought that was super interesting too, because it's not only people, there are many ways to sacrifice for your children. So I just wanted to talk to you a little more about that and how you put that, how you put that in. I mean, one of the, the kernel for the book in that year and a half of writing really bad stuff to get it out of my system or part of the process, I wrote one flash fiction piece that was the only good thing I wrote. It was like 800 words. And it was about a young Filipino baby nurse who left her newborn at home to take care of another newborn. So the book in, in many senses started with Jane. And I was interested in, you know, there's a lot of, it's very easy and understandable to feel sympathy and your heart sort of being broken when you think of a young woman like that who's sacrificing basically time with her child to take care of other people's children or or, or for that child. But when I was writing this part, I thought that a lot of people do it, not to diminish it, but there are many different ways to sacrifice time with your family for the sake of that family. And I push it to the extreme by making the women at Golden Oaks surrogates. But if you think about it, women who work these high power jobs who may be the primary breadwinner do it in some senses with more privilege. Yes, and I'm not diminishing. There are people who have to, working class people in America who need two jobs to support their families. Their kids may be at home. They may not be in a surrogacy facility, but they don't see their kids. They're struggling to make it and they're sacrificing that time for their kids. And then there are people who like some of the Filipinas I know who left their kids in Manila to become baby nurses here or other things. And so I think it's just, it is a spectrum. What ties all of these people together is that they're mothers and they're all doing it for love of child. And I think almost the more interesting question is if the fundamental driver of all these disparate women from the high powered lawyer who's not seeing her kids to the women joining Golden Oaks, if that compulsion is the same, then what ends up making them so different in society and the book and how they treat each other. And I think that is where my fascination kind of lies. You also wrote in a Marie Claire article about how at the beginning you really wanted to understand how women particularly women who had left their kids in other countries, can emotionally compartmentalize successfully to do their jobs well and sort of deal with being apart. So what what did you find when you were talking to people about that? I didn't do explicit research for this book. It was more years and years of just being kind of a friendly person who <laughs> is curious about people. So I knew a lot of people's stories, but it was never with the intent of a book until then I started writing the book and all of these memories and stories came back. And in those conversations... I never felt comfortable asking that mm. um, because I was worried there might be judgment in it or I was just worried of making them sad. Right, yeah. You just making them sad. And so I never, and so again, because I didn't do research, I didn't like have a journalistic approach to asking people the tough questions. It was just people who became my friends or didn't become my friends, but I was sitting in a park bench talking to them. I have heard some of the women over the years say things to me, especially when the kids they were taking care of was the same age as their own children. Wow, they have a tutor. Wow, what chance do my kids have? Things like that. 
that quite honestly made me feel uncomfortable because my kids were basically, I mean, they're talking about their clients' kids and my kids are clients' kids. My kids have all the opportunities and privileges of their clients' kids. And so then again, I would maybe shy away from that conversation too. So it was, I'm guessing, and I I believe from the people I'm closer to who are domestic workers, you just kind of deal with it and see it as a different world from the one you're living in and try not to draw too many parallels because when you do make the parallels, the friends I know who do make those parallels, it's hard for them. They feel like their kids never are not going to have a shot. Yeah. I think one of the things your book does so well is just highlight sort of the unfairness of the lottery of life, that you're born into one family or another. It's You can't control it. And you either get all these immediate advantages or you don't. And not to say you can't change your life, but some people have to work so much harder than other people. Some just have to maintain their lives. And I feel like your book really looks into that very well. So I was just wondering, like, what do you think? Like, do you think it's fair? I mean, in what way is this fair? Like, is there anything we can even do about it? Like, do you feel like this is something like from God? Is there something the government should get involved in? Like, is there, I mean, is this just life? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it just like life and we have to deal with it? I bet, no, I, I agree. It's something, it's since, since I've thought about this a lot, not in the way of an expert, just to someone noticing differences starting in college, probably. Yeah. Um, and then at The Economist, this was always a very live debate when I was writing for The Economist, the difference between relative inequality, absolute inequality, which one matters, which one doesn't. I think it's pretty clear that inequality has gotten to such a point to such a point that that it is starting to affect the basis for who we are, as I'm talking now, as Americans. The idea that anyone can come here and make it, the, uh, the idea that all men are created equal and what that actually means. I've been reading articles lately from people like Eli Broad and others who are getting into this debate and not in the way that some might expect. A lot, of, Some of these billionaires are saying that we should have a wealth tax. Now, I'm not an expert. I haven't explored this, but the idea that it's a lot. And then on the other side that you see people, politicians, very openly stating that they're socialists in a way that you wouldn't have gotten maybe much traction, let's say a generation, definitely a generation ago, but they're, they're the same phenomenon, right? And so at the very least, I don't know the answer, but the fact that it's becoming a mainstream discussion from both ends, from people who have the privilege to change things and from, I guess politicians have the, the ability to change things too, but sometimes I feel like they don't, <laughs> but that they're, they're talking about it too. I just hope it gets there. I don't know that this place and the inequality that is, there's always an inequality in life, right? And the idea that at least if you give people a shot, if they want to work hard to bridge that, that's what makes inequality, if not palatable, acceptable, right? And so my issue is less with the not less with, but inequality, but with do people have the chance if they have it in them to right. first of all have a decent life. I want you to have a decent life and healthcare, I believe, but to surmount whatever they've been born with in the unlocked lucky lottery of life. Because the lottery of life, I think that that is a part that is what it is, right? Yeah. And I just I'll tell you, I guess until I had privilege and money more than I grew up with, I didn't understand fully how unfair it is. And I say that with very mixed is not the right word, but sort of roiling emotions because on the one hand I feel very lucky that my I'm at this place that my kids have that but I had no idea mm-hmm. <laughs> how it was. and I don't know if 10 year old 13 year old 17 year old me back in Wisconsin knew what I let's say I'm able to give my kids the opportunities the enrichment that fill in so many things what that 17 year old who was working her ass off to get out of Wisconsin and do better if she would have felt energized or or discouraged. Mm. I really don't. And so again, that's back to being on both sides. I just, that's the book I wanted to write that, that if people, some people read it 
and question a little bit what's around us. Even if some, just some readers do, then I will feel proud of that. So now that you've sort of survived this whole book writing process and you've written this beautiful book that's made people think about all these really important issues and maybe think about their own home life and domestic situations a little bit differently, you know, and really changed the day-to-day lives of so many people. What what do you hope, what's coming next for you? Like, did you love the process? Did you find it too frustrating that it took five years to write this book? Like, are you now energized to write another one? Or like, how did, how have you ended up thinking about this whole thing? And what do you want to do next? No, I definitely, I, I'm like antsy. I'm itchy to write. I have not had time because it turns out that selling a book takes so much time. Starting in January, actually, I've been really busy doing a whole bunch of stuff, talks and media and started writing personal essays um, for a few publications, which I have never done before. It's really fun. I've learned <laughs> a lot uh, writing them, actually, things about myself that I didn't even know until I wrote them. And I really loved the, um, I, I was very nervous about the public speaking, public facing part of it. It's still not, I don't think, my forte, but I really loved, I ended up really liking them because so far, and I'm still new, my book's not even out two months yet. So far, I've learned something, at, I think, except for one event, I've learned something. Like someone's asked a question that I've thought, huh, I never thought about that or pointed out something in the book, basic things in the book that I didn't. Someone said, you know, there aren't men in the book except for Leon. Are you trying to say that white men still run the world? I'm like, oh, oh my God, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's so funny. And and you're not trying to put all these messages in, but things get in there from your subconscious and then it takes someone on the outside to point it out. So it's been really fun, this part. I really love it. But I definitely, definitely, definitely want to write. I mean, this is it. This is what I've always wanted to do. Finally. I'm just a really late bloomer. No. <laughs> I actually feel like it's very rare for, and I'm try, I've am i been trying to figure out just, you know, obviously not from a research standpoint, mm-hmm. but just from life experience. Most people yeah. writing fantastic books are not 25 years old, right? And so is it what you learn over time? as a person that you have to bring yeah. to your writing because then everybody comes into it thinking that they're late. Whereas this is actually the age I feel like when great writing really happens. So you're, you're probably right. You know what it is, is our society is so youth obsessed and we love all those lists like the 30 under 30 and the, 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 the. so what gets a lot of air when there's a new phenom out there, you hear a lot about it. Like yeah. I think Sally Rooney is incredibly yes. talented. Yeah. I like her books. Yes. She's super young and she gets, because she's a great writer, she gets a lot of press, but she gets a lot of press but because of her age, because mm-hmm. she's so young, right? And so I think that is it probably in every profession, those 40 under 40, 30 under 30 lists are in every, it's in media, it's in business, it's in writing. Um, but you're right. It probably isn't that I, I just think like in other professions, you actually can be just as good when you're younger. Yeah, I don't believe that. I don't think for writing. Yeah. Not that some people can't be outliers. Well, anyway, this right. is just my own theory. And I just think there's something about, I don't know if it's the wisdom with age or the experience or just something, but... I feel like I want to like go back to myself in college because I've, I've also always wanted to be a writer and just be like, keep doing it. But just FYI, don't expect anything yeah. big to happen until your 40s. Right. Like, you know, right. everything right. along the way will help. But, you know, yes. <laughs> pace yourself. I no, I, my son, my oldest one, he's 13, asked me to speak to his class at school. And just because he's soon not going to want me around him at all because he'll be a full on. T- I, I went in right away. And uh, he said, mommy, the night before, I said, don't worry if the kids don't ask you any questions tomorrow. It's a Friday. I was speaking on a Friday. It's like, it's a Friday. It's the last period of the day. Just don't be sad. Quite emotional and sensitive. And he thought that I would be really sad. And I went in and my, I, did, I wasn't sure what to say. So I just made it about exactly what you're saying. I said, you know, there is this 
especially of their generation, there's so much pressure to know where you're going. Like some of the kids are already thinking about college. They're in seventh grade. I mean, it's so crazy. And I said, you know, I don't think I could have written this book if I didn't take all these detours and zigzags. But along the way, I wanted to be right. I didn't know why always I was doing what I was doing. I was taking the next thing. I was trying to get a lot out of whatever I did, but I didn't, there was no grand plan that led to this book. It turns out the book couldn't have been written without knowing about finance writing for The Economist, being a mother, all of these things. And I said, so just have some faith that if you're working hard and staying open and curious, that it will lead somewhere. And at the end, it was dismissal. And they were still asking questions. And it was so cool. Um, and finally, I was like, you know that you guys were dismissed seven, eight minutes ago. They're like, whoa. And then they all ran away. <laughs> but when I'd heard from the mothers and dads after what their kids were saying, it was mainly that. It was like, oh, it's so good to not feel like you always have to know. And I do feel like you and I already feel that about our younger selves, but I feel like the pressure on kids now is even more heightened. Or maybe it's just living in New York City and being a certain world. I don't know. I kind of feel like it's everywhere, though, when I speak to my friends in San Fran and other places. My my 12-year-old son the other day, in response to something random, some quiz or I don't know, something... He he like slumped over at the kitchen island and he's like, Do you think my do you think my shot at Princeton is gone now? And I was like, oh. You're twelve. Like, are you you're kidding 12. me? Yeah. Anyway, I so I was like, And I'm like, There's so many schools. What are you talking about? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's well, something think cultural. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, well, I know we're almost out of time. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors now having been down this road? If there's somebody out there, I know we've been touching on this but I feel like I've, yeah. been, I've been saying way too much myself. But what, what's your advice to aspiring authors aside from letting it you know, unfold throughout the course of life? I mean, I think that really the main one in, it, in those first months when I was getting into the habit, it was, I would read a lot of the books about writing um, and the common thread among them. And the one that I really found to be true is just the persistence to stack up the pages as Ann Patchett says and stick with it. I do have friends who don't believe that you need a routine. For me, I had to write every day. I had to write big t- in part to, to prove to myself that I was taking it seriously. I just, and even in some days when my kids were sick, it would be 30 minutes, but I kept my foot in that door. I didn't let that door ever really shut. And I just kept at it until something came. So I think it's the persistence and the faith because it may be a while before you come up with the idea that's going to make sense for you. And the other one that's much more micro is if you're interested in writing a book, I kept um, through those five years, anytime I met anyone at a party anywhere, like I can't drop off. Oh, my roommate from... Bucknell, I used to be an agent. I'm like, roommate from Bucknell, agent. I had this (laughs) list of potential agents who I knew so vaguely. I knew most of them so vaguely, but at least I had a word. It just helped me get around the slush pile. That's a very micro thing, but it was really helpful to not totally start from scratch five years later when I had a manuscript. I had this list of little connections that I could use to say, I know Bob. He was your roommate at Bucknell. (laughs) Very smart. Here is my manuscript. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for writing such a beautiful novel that uh, will inspire so much thought-provoking discussion around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Right. Bye. Thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.